Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Sarah Murray, live from Espanol. Uh, how are you? Como estas? Uh, Muy bien, ¿y tú? Habla un poco de español. ¿Sí? Muy bien. <laughs> Good, well done. So, um, and do you speak, uh, is that, did you do um, Spanish uh, GCSE or A-level? Um, I started at A-level, never finished it, um, and then just picked bits up over years and years. Love to be fluent. Um, if yeah. someone could just, you know, fund me to be out here for three or four months, I reckon I'd come home fluent. I'd get a lot of work done as well, I think. Yeah, Duolingo. Um, mm, yeah, that was road. <laughs> Duolingo was the story of my lockdown. Yeah, and yes. you know that with Duolingo, you're translating the internet as well. Mm. Yes, I did read that somewhere. Yeah, long after I'd started using it. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. well, Where are you live from? Do you, do you want to give a quick intro, like a story so far? Can't like it can't take ten seconds, but it can't take like three minutes. Okay, so um, I'm a I'm Sarah Murray. I'm a human. I'm also in my spare time. I do things such as performance psychology, um, and I train. I'm a former athlete. Uh, played hockey to a fairly good level, um, and these days I. I still just love working with people, have a background as a PE teacher. Um, that was my first career. My second one, as I said, currently I'm a sports psychologist, uh, freelance, run my own business, Performance Edge Consultancy, working across various performance platforms uh, across yeah, business, education. And again, the commonality in all of this is working with people. Well done. That was a good summary. Um, and, and why did you get into it? I'm curious. So you were, you were mm. a teacher. I, I, I knew that you used to be a PE teacher yeah what like what prompted you to get into the brain stuff um I'm always really honest with this and and a lot of people I've met also would would say similar but there's me search there's me search in everything and I've always been fascinated by by the mentality around performance and from a personal point of view I, I vividly remember um by my late teens, I'd given up throwing the javelin. I was a nationally ranked javelin thrower. Um, I'd given up playing county tennis. Um, and I had really navigated far more towards the team sports. And I remember the feelings I had of absolute dread and fear and anxiety through the roof when I was uh, playing individual sports, when I was throwing the javelin or playing tennis. And, and I really found it difficult. Um, 
And then as I got older, I was really interested by that as to, to how I would and why I'd thrive in a team environment. Um, and then I, I always knew that, that PE teaching was amazing, but at some point um, I would want to, to look into the psychology of performance. And it, it happened a bit earlier in my life than I thought. I was in my late 20s when, when I shifted many years ago. So you could have been Tessa Sanderson. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, as a very young girl, body conscious teenager, I was actually put off by that. We, um, mm, mm, I remember, I remember being, being body conscious and, and thinking, my goodness, like if I have to be really good at this, do I have to get really massive and bulky? Which of course is not the case at all. It's, it's all about technique and a fast arm. Um, yeah. And, and what does size matter anyway, you know, but as a, as a, a conscious teenager, it felt a bit different, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah how far did you throw the javelin? Oh, you know, about 60 centimetres. Um, yeah. I don't know, 40 plus, 40 oh, at, at my peak. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's so, pretty cool. That was, yeah, back in the day. Strong work. And which has got me like already thinking like we're going <laughs> to try and um, work out how we could like use psychology in, a, in an MDT spoon. Mm. But even one of the things, the axes of it depends and the stuff that's got me thinking again, like we've been speaking a bit about like uh, performance, development, is it like um, like match day, is it training, is it? But then even like individual team sports for me is like fascinating because I'm really like get my energy from team sports and hats off to, and I do work with coaches that, um, that coach individuals and it's like, it's a little bit outside of my sweet spot would be my my thought around this. And you That's nicely put. I guess you spend much more of your time in team sports. What do you miss from individual and what don't you miss? Uh, I mean, I, my so professionally, I've navigated towards working a lot in team sports, obviously, you know, off the back of nine years in football. And um, so professionally, I've, I've also, I guess, gone to a bit of a, a comfort zone where I, I know the culture, I understand that. And similarly to you, I get my energies from, from being around people and, and team sports. But I've learned a lot from working on an individual level as a performance psychologist with individual athletes. I seem to have worked with a lot of pole vaulters, um, which actually, I don't know why I'm looking confused. I can understand if you're going to Plant, plant your pole and fling yourself up five meters in the air then um you know that that takes something from a mentality point of view um and and i've learned a lot from from them and a lot from golf as well um and so they've taught me a lot about how how the psychology of of team sports and individual sports differ to some extent um in, in terms of your preparation, so, so we take golf for an example, you know, you've got all the time in the world to walk up to that little ball and to figure out how you're going to screw your shot up. Whereas, you know, when, you, when you're playing football and the ball comes to you out of the blue at 60 miles an hour and, and it, it's, it's a lot more reactive. Um, so therefore, your thinking time is narrowed down, which some would argue is, is both a, a blessing and, and a curse. Um, so I've, I've learned a lot in terms of the psyche of that. But there's, there's, you know, there's probably more similarities than there are differences because essentially what underpins high performance, so whether we're talking about a grassroots golfer or we're talking about someone on the Euro Pro Tour, um, is, is well-being, is like who they are as a person, understanding a bit about them and a bit about actually why it is individual sports allow them to thrive. You know, I know very clearly what, what blocked me um, and what allowed me to thrive in team sports. So, so I think that there are massive similarities, aren't there? When we're working across performance platforms with athletes, um, there are a lot of similarities. 
uh, as you said, well-being, I wrote down well-being because I was going to ask you about it before we got onto the smoothie. Um, yeah. Like the relationship, I guess, between well-being and performance is like quite important to understand, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is one, which, you know, and increasingly so. We, I know, imagine that. And, and we're, talk, we're talking about it and we're talking about it. And I've been talking about it, slash, if you are some of my former colleagues banging on about it, um, in their words, for years and years. And certainly um, I've changed a lot as I've got older and I've worked more into the elite performance um, realm in terms of understanding like where the balance lies. And they're inextricably linked. I can hand on heart say I have never done a piece of work with a support staff, a coach, um, a player, whereby it has only been performance. And we have ne- and we've not even talked about them or who they are or, or the well-being. Never. And I've also very rarely done a piece of work whereby it was all about well-being and who they were away from the sport without touching into the sport. It's always, in in my experience, um, a mixture of the both. We've got who they are as a person beyond the badge, but there's also often, depending on the the piece of work, there's a huge piece on performance and what's happening when they step over the white line and how they're managing it and how they deal with it and how they get the best from themselves. So there's 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 just this bringing together of the narrative of of it coming from a a place of supporting performance, which is great, but secondary to actually it serves them well if we can understand the underpinning of keeping ourselves well mentally well actually that serves performance but beyond that it serves us for life life beyond sport transitions um career changes and challenges which on a personal professional level um i've done a lot of work work around yeah and again probably speaks to my biases that actually it's like that's more important than tech tech but like we'll We'll, we'll delve into that. And, and I guess, like, why do you think, so I guess I'm thinking a, a lot about why don't coaches, like, why, I think we're more aware of this now, like yeah. coaches, schools, you know, parents around well-being. And I guess we're probably, like, trying to work out how to be more effective at help, helping support people with it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I wonder, like, what you think is getting in the way. And then also, like, if you could... Like, if I could give you a magic wand and you could go, look, here's three things that, or two things, or here's some stuff that I think every person, let's call them coaches, because I think like everyone's a yeah. coach, really. Um, mm-hmm. I could give them a couple of gifts. What gifts would you give people? I would give them the gift of a mirror, quite literally. Um, that would be the first gift that I'd give people. And, and that's probably the most difficult gift to receive and the most rewarding gift to make friends with um, from a, a self-reflection and a finding out about yourself and understanding yourself. And um, that goes from a, a well-being point of view, which, of course, then links into my performance at my best as a coach when it doesn't go so well as a coach. So the gift of a mirror, for sure. Um, and I would give them the gift of... of understanding and supporting this it's okay to talk about mental well-being to talk about mental health in the same way that I'll talk about mental uh, physical health or physical well-being um, and stick with it and as difficult as it might seem or as strange if it if it's not part of your narrative it soon becomes 
really normal, right? I, I, I physically am on the scale any given day of feeling physically great or medium or, or not so great. And mentally, I'm the same. I feel really great or I'm not so great or I'm sort of average, bumbling along. Beautiful. And tying in with uh, the phrase we talked about earlier, like furious, not curious, I guess the mirror mm. helps you understand what's making me furious. Why yeah. am I furious as opposed yeah. to curious? Yeah. That one's triggering me. Mm. And we get and we get furious. And we were talking, weren't we, earlier on around yeah. and I, I around this sort of natural curiosity and but turning natural curiosity about yourself into deliberate practice. So we, we're probably more naturally curious as humans, aren't we, around that as coaches around that player, why why he or she is doing this or not doing that or winding me up or I don't get them. And, and there's a natural curiosity there. My question is, what do we do to deliberately seek to understand more about the player? There, there's natural things that we do, but where do we store that information? Who do we share it with? How does it help me build the relationship with the player? But then there's that piece around um, actual self-curiosity like and that's a difficult bit isn't it like you said why is it that I am feeling so angry every time that player shifts into this position when I haven't told you know when I've told him not to or receives you know there, there's a piece here around our reaction to things um, and that furious not curious phrase is, is pretty cool I guess and, and you you exist in a world where things like supervision are pretty normal aren't they so you must yeah. be thinking, oh, why don't coaches do more of that? Yeah, but but coaches, in my experience, again, it's like, are you, coaches do it. A lot of coaches will do it and they'll do it naturally because they've got this, na- but when we seek to do it a bit more deliberately or, or give it a, um, I'm not going to tell you what my former colleague used to call it, the word supervision. It's a, anyway, it's a bleep psych word. But you can call it what you like, call it supervision, call it, um, I don't know, co-creation, call it just, you know, catching up for some reflection time, whatever. When we do it deliberately and there's a boundary around it and we go, yeah, I'm going to block this hour out and this is why I'm doing it rather than I'm going to walk down the corridor today and I'm probably going to end up having a cool chat with so-and-so. And and you know what that is? That's absolutely can be a supervision space, but let's do alongside that something more deliberate because then when that, when you're deliberately chatting with that colleague, that that coach mentor that that person you trained with in my case my my supervision group you then get loads more from it an hour of me search every week an hour of me search every week uh, yeah sure um yeah it's um it's uncomfortable but it's it it you gotta you gotta have that mirror it's yet to appear on a coaching plan for the week i've ever seen not saying that it yeah. has to appear on the plan but uh, yeah but definitely yeah. an intention around it. Well, let's get into the smoothie. Yeah. So, the smoothie, yeah. Uh, Elliot Newell yeah, uh, credited. Yeah. Do you want um, to explain why? And then we can kind of frame our sure. conversation. Sure. So um, so recently, um, and I, I, it, I forget where Elliot Newell credited it to because he, he got it from somewhere and credited but I'm crediting it to him because that's where I heard it. So Elliot and I um, did our training together. He's a really cool guy, good, good sports psych. And um, we were on a, um, a CPD day recently and he was talking about the function of MDT teams and, you know, what does psychology look like within organizations, within teams, um, be it from grassroots up to elite level when it's done really well and how's it changed? And he started telling the story of, of um, the fruit bowl. So this idea that, you know, whoever's in the, in the MDT team, you might have a coach, analyst, psych, if you're lucky, 
really lucky um physio and and we did with pieces of fruit right so the coach is the apple the the, the psychs the banana the, we've always got a physio the physio is the pear over there and you know if, if a player johnny johnny needs the psych the apple and you know send him to the apple send him to go see the apple that's fine great so the apple then you know works with the player and the the pair knows nothing about it but actually the player is also rehabbing and the pair holds unbelievable information about that player so i mean i guess we he was talking about this how how psychology or or physiotherapy coaching you know this this siloed idea of being separate pieces of fruit in a in a fruit bowl is something that we've i imagine i've got experience of it I'm sure you could speak to experience of where it's all been very very neatly boxed off right we neatly box the psych there box the tech there box the tack and the physical there um and I, I would argue if we want to get the best out of players, there has to be this sense of, of a fruit salad. So, so we, we shifted, and in my experience in the, the club I worked in for years, we shifted from being separate bits of fruit in our fruit bowl to a bit of a fruit salad. So suddenly the, the pear, the orange, the banana, the apple, we've been, we've been cut up a little bit and we've been mixed into the same bowl. So we're communicating well, you know, my, my, um, uh, my sense of what's going on with the pair, the physio, um, and and her relationship, his relationship with players is there, and it's pretty cool. We can do some stuff, and psychology though still feels quite separate because I'm still a cut up apple in a bowl. So it's still, you know, you can still pick out and very clearly see the psychology, and often it's led by the psychologist in my case, which definitely doesn't need to be the case at all. And then from there, we think about well, how do we be even better? How do we how do we make sure that psychology is embedded with and through everything we do, through the, through the tech tax sessions, through the physio work, through the through the coaching conversations, which at its very best it is, and that's when we are smoothies. So that's when we think about we've got the fruit salad has been someone's whacked it in a blender, we've all been mushed up, and actually you don't really know where the psychology starts and finishes because it's being done all the time. The narrative, the language, the the day-to-day conversations, the curiosity um, with and through in training sessions, during games, in meetings, and it's just there. And it's not being driven by the psychologist sitting in the corner. So um, while you were talking, I wrote down, well, the pair often holds all the information. Oh, absolutely. often holds Mm, most of the information. mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I was, I thought we could have a, actually, so, um, and then I worked in a smoothie that then very quickly became like, wasn't it, we weren't even in the same bowl, quite frankly. Yeah, um, absolutely. So you're on different trees. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were definitely on different trees. Mm. Um, and then I got thinking, like, you'd almost, like, between us, we could probably like, list the stuff that gets in the way of the smoothie. So there is loads of stuff, isn't there? Mm. So the minute the leader... Yeah, sure values values the fruit over the smoothie then it's pretty Mm. tough isn't it yeah absolutely um and you know a leader whoever the leader in that environment is um be it you know head coach be it whatever it might be whoever it is that understanding of of psych and if i just stick with psychology um because that's where my bias lies um in the best environments that i've been in it the psychology has been done with and through the, the staff, the staff, you know, the, like, like you said, the pair, the physio, 
the the SNC. I worked with a with an SNC. I was really privileged at, at my last club, who I would say did the the lion's share of the the psychological understanding around relationship building with players. Just had this really lovely natural way. Now I didn't teach her to do that. I didn't I didn't stand over her. It was just this great natural thing, and it's really important that as the as the the holder of of psychology that other people thought I would be that that we let our we leave our egos at the door because yes I'm the the psychologist I'm the the apple but I I get pleasure from watching the the pear or the banana over there actually doing an amazing job of of being curious to understand their players beyond the pitch beyond performance so that they can actually function and serve to support them better in their five or five left and rights in their mass runs in their their tech stuff whatever it might be um and it, it's great i think that's a, a massive thing around leaving our egos at the door so that so that the smoothie works best when we do not have this idea this notion of gotta stay in our lane you know i'm the i'm the snc must stay in my lane physio's in her or his lane psych's in their lane coach in their lane and the best psychs i've ever worked with undoubtedly are our coaches i wrote stay in, stay in your lane as uh, you were just before you said that because i was thinking about that some of the stuff that i think gets in the way is like that lack of cycle the psychs in part-time which is often the case in ruby club often yeah and so suddenly they actually less important because they're part-time uh, hierarchy uh, bottom of the hierarchy would be the analyst uh, mm-hmm. psychologists go down the hierarchy if we don't understand how to use them sure language stay in the lane uh, ego or lack of understanding mm-hmm. job titles so again like if we call more people coaches, we might think about them differently. Uh, meetings, who's allowed in which meetings? You must have had some where you thought, oh, I think I should be at that meeting. Or I'm in a meeting and there's some other people outside who should be in the meeting. And actually there's some people in the room who should be in the meeting. Yeah, creating that. Yeah, absolutely. And then even, that, yeah. even that, like, like, I think a helpful exercise is just to get everyone to redesign the programme. To get the psychs to redesign it, the physios, mm-hmm. that, and then go right. What have we learned from this experience? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. we would do some stuff. And, and and if I know you're going to talk about your old club, but I want to call them like Melchester Rovers because that was right, Roy the Rovers team. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I know, I love Roy the Rovers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, um, no, I think definitely it's when you're redesigning anything like so. When I, I remember when I've redesigned and built psych programs, and I'm and I'm doing one now actually with a um, with a, a club, and I, I I've come in and I think they think I'm gonna I'm gonna deliver and give them a psych program. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Like I'm coming to you to go. I can facilitate this. I can, you know, yeah, sure, but but this is yours. Like this is for all of us. This is for the analyst to jump in on. This is for the bus driver to, because, because he, he or she in Academy football, for example, holds unbelievable knowledge, fantastic nuggets of information when you invite them into a conversation about Johnny um, and what's going on with him or her. And um, yeah, the, the, the more people around the table, the more voices and you get to understand where your, where your differences are. You get to narrow down what it is you're all talking about um, and differences in language and like you said if you're redesigning a program you get all these different ideas but you're all building if we did a, an exercise where we just kept asking and why and why and why the higher order and the the, the pinnacle of, of everyone being around that table I bet that you'd all get to, we'd all get to the same point 
the bus driver will get to the same point as as the um, head coach, as the psych, as the, the physio, which is around the athlete, the player, or, or whatever sport it might be, being wanting to get the best from them and wanting to support them in their journey. Ultimately, we always end up at that point, no matter what differences we have, in my experience. I'm with you. Um, and often we're not talking about that purpose enough. We're, we're too far down. We're, we're like, we're like yeah, you versus eagle-eyed view of stuff. Exactly. And that's when we then bash heads and we think that the everyone around us completely is misaligned to to what we want and how we work and and if we just actually keep going and going and going with enough good questioning and enough good kind of whys you know why is that important why is it what eventually you will get to the same point it's it's been something I've done in meetings unknowingly well I say unknowingly like you know I've just I've just been that annoying person that's just dragged out of everyone until eventually everyone's kind of gone to the same point and gone, oh yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, now let's work. Now let's work back down to where we were and, and figure some stuff out. Yeah, yeah, we are on the same mission. That's pretty mm. cool. Mm. Um, I was thinking we could maybe play around with like a, a Melchester Rovers training session yeah. and, uh, and a match day scenario. So I was kind mm. of thinking. Um, <laughs> about like some stuff and imagining I was like a, a coach and again we can jump in and out of like yeah, yeah. whether or not the psychs there or not um yep. I worked with psychs that were uh, on pitch lots like would be like in the middle of it I worked with some that found that quite uncomfortable so again when we use the word psych like it's not always the same is it in the same way coaches not always the same so I guess one of the things is like even if you do have a psych, you probably got to understand like their strengths and and, mm. and how they can be effective within <laughs> the team. I guess that's something I would initially be thinking about. Like, what are they? You know, how they're going to make a really good smoothie? Because we might have different flavors. Yeah, you got different flavors of psychs. Exactly. Um, you know, you'd like like you know, let's say the psychs, the apple. You've got Gala Braben. You know, you've got all the different varieties. Um, granny, what is it? Fox, Grant, granny, Granny Smith. That's the one. Um, yeah, and it's and it's really important, isn't it? That like, if anyone comes into your environment, if I'm a coach and I've got a physio coming, got a psych come in, because physios would operate differently as well. The way in which they work, the way in which they 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 relate to people would be different. So particularly you know if I think about psychs and and again I can only talk about my experience I know that my background who I am as a person sits and fits with working with and through coaches I set myself in the coaching office I was out at training session in boots I was the world's most highly qualified cone collector for about a decade um, and that's just kind of a function of who I am and who I am, my beliefs and values kind of underpins how I practice as a sports psych and professionally what you see from me day to day when I'm out and about. And, and you know, I'm sports science background rather than a pure psych background. And, it, and it's just me how I work. But then I, there are some fantastic psychologists that are less inclined to want to get out on pitch. Maybe they come from a pure psych background, but they're no less, they're no less um, fantastic at what they do. Um, then the other piece here is what is right for that environment as well. 
you know what sits and fits is going to and is going to have the biggest impact with the environment that you're in with that club or that organization and the people in it and what, what do they want from you how can you align with that so as a psychologist I very quickly as I said I aligned with the coaches I built those those relationships quickly um, as a function of of my biases and the fact that, that the lads just were you know they were they were top top lads and and we did some good work together because again my ego's at the door if I can help them to to be like the absolute best versions of them then players are going to benefit right I was uh, imagining on the first day you like you just bundled straight into the coach's office moved the stuff aside yeah. I'm yeah, sitting yeah. here like yeah get on with it everyone I did some relationship building before that, I can tell you. And I always had an office as well of my own, which if I needed a bit of peace and quiet and I wanted to do so, or I was working one-to-one with a player or, or a member of staff, you know, I had this, this private space. So when, when the coaches wound me up, um, you know, most afternoons, I would just be like, yeah, be back in a bit. And I'd, I'd, go, to my, uh, I'd go to my windowless box for an hour. Yeah. And even, uh, and like the cone collection is like a skill, isn't it? Because like choosing your flight path of, where you pick up the cones mm-hmm. to maybe like speak with some mm-hmm. people or hear some stuff or to yeah. see whether people are reflecting mm-hmm. or is it's a critical coaching skill, the flight mm-hmm. path of picking up the cones. Yeah. And I credit my P teaching background um, and my, my sports science degree for really helping me out with that. Um, but all joking aside, it, it, it really is the environment where, where players and staff will have those natural conversations and open up. Um, because like I said, I'm a human first. The fact I've got ologist as a job title, um, it, it, it's, it can be a bit of a sticking point and a block and a barrier. Um, so, you know, again, if I'm, a, if I'm a coach or I'm working with a coach, uh, very quickly I'm working with them and having a conversation with them out of natural human curiosity, not because my job title is ologist. Um, and, I, and I think that's really important because there is still help-seeking stigma attached to a lot of elite athletes nice and just before i get into my my session plan which i'm just currently panicking <laughs> and uh, planning um a couple of things there and again like it started triggering me a bit around the psychologist um we had this uh, oh uh, he won't mind me saying it james bell jet belly came in for his first ever uh, presentation and yeah. put up a slide and did about about a thousand words on it and he lasted five minutes and he was asked to go away and redo it um, so I do think they've done that. Yeah, often we need 100%. to translate. And then the other thing I thought that like, often as coaches, we just need like you referenced it there, but even like some some good little like some good options, like good day, bad day, or like some ways we can <laughs> translate it just to help coaches go, okay, this is I see how this is helpful. Yeah, yeah, sure. And and like you said, good day, bad day, and that that might not be about the about the the players or the session that that might be about them um that that might be good day bad day and it's not about them it's about the the players or what happened in their training session or or the the coaching points or the way they came across but just to have that that language to know that you've got someone to to bounce some stuff off and essentially and i know at at my best i am i am no more than a, a really good wall that people can bounce things off and actually, you know, like, I don't know if you, when you were a kid, I used to hit a tennis ball against the wall all the time and it would just bounce back. And the more I did it, the better I got. The more I did it, the better I got. And the wall was just bouncing the ball back to me, which is what I needed. Um, 
And I guess, you know, again, I think at our best, sometimes as psychologists or as, as coaches, as physios, we can be really, really helpful in an environment if we can be there as that wolf for, for, for the coaches to, to come about stuff. I'm not a coach. So I certainly, I certainly didn't, didn't, you know, give them a lot of advice on transition to defend and the movement patterns of that specific drill, but they would, they would talk through that stuff with me. And by the time we'd had a conversation, they'd go away a little bit with some mental clarity around the the purpose of the session, how they were going to get what they wanted on it, uh, what they wanted from it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, nice. And I've enjoyed the wall analogy. I did say I enjoyed analogies. Yeah. Um, you're speaking to me. Um, so I'm thinking about this session and I'm, I'm like, um, I'm just really mindful that something I would probably think about is like, who needs to like have some information in advance of the session. So um, even if they need a bit more time to think slow, so even like priming some stuff the night before, or it might be that we've got some teams in the session and we want to give one set of people some information to allow them to think about it and connect up um, in advance. So like I'd work with a team where they've they got their non-starters to be the red team basically for the week but they like had some secret missions around some stuff. But I also, you know, clearly like if people have some, some difficulties around taking in large amounts of information, then actually to prime yeah. them with that stuff. So that was my first instinct as a coach was to think like who needs information before the session. Um, and then my next instinct was like when people do show up for the session, like two things that I think, um, one thing I think I'm good at, one thing I need to be better at is um, like, I think I'm pretty good at checking in and like noticing and thinking about my um, my kind of flight path and who I'm going to speak to and why. And mm. But, I, I, but I'm, I'm awful at uh, like signposting. So I will often have a whiteboard that like probably helps people and some people who are a bit different to me who probably need a bit of rationale and might need uh, know what's coming next as opposed yeah. to like, we'll just freestyle with Rusty. Um, so when I was thinking about like psychology, um, um, those were the first two things I thought about. What, what were the, what were the first two things you thought about? Hey, will you tell everyone what you're up to at Core 37? Hi Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the Northeast and we're the sister company of Oddballs. We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Core 37, our in-house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Core 37? Uh, if I was to pick three, Fletch, it would be our lead time of three to four weeks, our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of with Core 37? Oh, there's loads of stuff, but the, the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement, which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people, everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we generally care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core 37? Uh, apart from the fact you're a Geordie, uh, great people, uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us, Wilkie. Anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to Tom at core-37.com. So, what's in my mind just now is I want to ask you a question. That's what's in my mind. Oh, I want to ask you a question. So when you when you thought about like providing the, the whiteboard there for the for the 
the players that might need a bit more rationale and, and maybe think and act a little bit differently mm. to you. Who have you got with you? Who in that space connects really well with those players? It depends where I'm, where I'm working, but like, yeah. so co-coaching is like, or, or, or where anyone's like, yeah, yeah co-coaching is critical, isn't it? To be able to go right yeah. in this session, I think like, let's imagine me and you working together, Sarah, and like, yeah. I think these players are going to find this tough and I'm not that good at helping players that find stuff tough. Yeah. My, you know, I'll often want to give them problems that might be too hard for them. And so, Sarah, wouldn't it be great if you can, like, check in with those players and, mm. you know, help them out a little bit? That, that would be, I guess, I, I would I would often declare that if I do, a like, a one-off session, I'll go, look, is anyone keen for a bit of co-coaching? And I might, like, go, look, here's some options. Here's all the stuff I'm rubbish at. Yeah. Like, please, can some people, like, help me with this? And that's massively important. And, you know, I think you've just answered your, your own question in terms of, like that that's certainly something I think is important I would also say that one of the biggest things that I've I've done as a psychologist but I say as a psychologist actually any coach I'm, I'm just a coach my my bias is different because it's towards the brain and, and what but I'm just a coach and so talking with the other coaches around pressure one of the most common questions is like right Sarah I, the training session that we, we've briefly touched on it haven't we the training training day match versus match day and eliciting eliciting manipulated pressure situations which is really difficult to do mm. when it's in training and you want to do it really well but you don't want to do it so well that you've absolutely battered these lads psychologically um to the point where they've just got such high failure from that session they walk away completely demotivated um, and so one, one of the key things, and it speaks to what we're talking about, is this idea of, of debriefing, of, of making sure that whatever you're planning for for the session, so you're wanting it to be, you're wanting it to be high risk, high failure session, for example, you're wanting to really, like you said, you give your players problems that are virtually impossible to solve. Uh, there's some real merit in that, but the merit comes from not just leaving them feeling like they've been hung over a cliff with no safety net underneath. Um, so it's the perception of feeling that they might be over a cliff, but actually post-session debriefing them and actually going like, what was going on for you there? Like, how was it? And it's that post-session debrief that can have the real performance benefits in terms of the players understanding their mindset and understanding a little bit more about their psychology and how to manage it or not like I think that's the key so many times I've seen like these great coaching sessions and you know the there's been so much um planning going into them so many conversations beforehand to prep for the session maybe maybe prepping scenarios prepping a little bit of role play with some of the players etc fab but what's not done well enough is the post-session is that is that afterwards that, but, and I mean, immediately afterwards, I don't mean the next day. I mean that kind of 15 minutes afterwards to just go, listen. Yeah. I want you to know there was a safety net and I haven't just pushed you off a cliff. Yeah. And, and, and I guess. And this is why. My reflection on that is often, and same with, with, as a teacher, I think we spend more time thinking about the start of the session than the end. Hmm. Like, um, and then, yeah, and again, as you were speaking then, I was thinking about, like, I would try not to leave it to the end. I would actually, like, you know, you, you I don't want to leave someone dangling. You've got to think about how long you want someone to dangle over the cliff for, don't you? And it might not be for sure. a session. And it, no, it, it might, might be, be five be minutes. Certain people. 
but it might be less for other. Yeah. So yeah. understanding the people. And mm-hmm. the other thing I wrote was like just an understanding. And I do like this question. And um, it's and and uh, Di Lewis shout out Inglewood Street. And they just talk about what what makes you wobble. I think it's a really good question to start mm-hmm. to talk about like what frustrates you, what yeah. takes you out of the moment, and then mm-hmm. and then actually let's. Because the other thing I wrote about was to what extent would I pre-mortem stuff? So to what extent would I grab a couple of players and go like, look, today's session is going to be really tough. Actually, we're going to like, yeah. so, you know, is there any stuff I can help you with or what's your solutions to this? And, mm-hmm. and, and again, like it might not be that I'm doing that five minutes before, it might be that I'm doing that 24 hours before, yeah. but I guess until you understand the players, it's pretty, mm-hmm. I'm probably like putting my finger in the air a little bit. And and what do you and, and what am I looking like? What what are we looking for? What 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 are we going to see? It's that it's that kind of um, planning for the what ifs as well, isn't it? So you know that conversation before the twenty four hours beforehand or an hour beforehand. If you're a coach and you know that there's going to be a couple of players that are going to potentially really wobble, um, like that's okay. And the role modelling of how the players feel in terms of actually that is okay or not often. The most powerful model of, as we know, in all of that is the coaches. So, again, if this if this narrative is coming from a coach that shows absolute, never makes mistake, always right, never wobbles, and then and you and you're pulling the player to go, listen, like this is going to be really tough. Like, what you, you might wobble, the player's going to be like, geez, well, I, I can't, like, I can't wobble. We don't do wobbling here, right? So, role modeling is is really important because that that will be successful if. The, the the wobble narrative and I really like that like dies dies a great coach I've heard her a few times speaking um if, if that's lived and enacted by the person having the conversation by the coach or, or or the physio or the or the psychologist whoever it might be um I then wrote uh, as you were talking there like it's quite good to deliberately make mistakes um a because you get a good sense of as a coach yeah. of like whether people will challenge you but b it's probably quite good to like to model some stuff pretty early yeah. on with, especially with new groups, I would be pretty, yeah. I would think about that. Then I sure. started, while you were speaking, I also started thinking about the element of their choice in lots of this stuff. Like what what degree of wobble do you want today? Like we could, mm. we could go mild, mediums, spicy, mm. so that choice. And then I was and around levels. And then I thought like just being really aware, and I think this is possibly more important on a match day or more likely to happen on a match day of just – my reaction to errors, like, like as a coach, like, yeah, uh, yeah, versus yeah, have, like, yeah. oh, you know, I think uh, I think Eddie said once, they're quite like, you know, we're we're making all the right mistakes to do really well this weekend. Mm. So I thought it was quite nice. Little, like, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I I've never met a coach yet who is so incredibly perfect that they have to go out and deliberately make mistakes because they're not going to make any naturally. Yeah. I mean, listen, shout out to anyone out there that has to do that. Fair play. But, um, you know, the, and those are the golden nuggets. And again, we don't frame those up in the right way. And in, when we when we think about coach education and we're, we're driven, aren't we, towards perfectionism and towards perfect. And and that's not where the good stuff happens. We know this. We, we know that the mistakes is what drives learning, is what drives development and drives performance, whether we're talking about a coach in a coaching session or a player on the pitch. Um, so I think for for sure, role modeling some of that early on as being successes. So your quick wins as a coach, your quick wins early on are absolutely 
how you choose to respond to those those mistakes those the 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 session that just went to went to the down the toilet and how you choose to frame that with the players um and then i was thinking a little bit about like the, the peer-to-peer stuff and how important that is especially with the younger ones around creating belonging but also i think it's a really helpful skill that they can like give and receive feedback to each other so actually even modeling some of those conversations or point to the person who's been like the best teammate or like we are we are at uh, spicy spicy levels of wobble now like point yeah. to two people who's like who you think are doing really well mm-hmm. like to deal with that so I was yeah. thinking a, a bit around my preference is that like people give each other feedback more often it can't just be like me as a coach um sharing information with people so i'm i'm mm. kind of trying to manufacture that in more often than uh, than i used to when i was uh, when i was a little yeah one. yeah because those people if like, let's say we're talking about development sport but those people will then develop into young adults into fully grown adults and their experience of either having received feedback all the time from a coach and that's how it is or actually of learning how to give and receive feedback peer to peer they're going to take with them through that journey and then when they potentially become coaches or business leaders or go into whatever it is, those are skills that are going to make a massive difference to their day-to-day world and their, like how well they do in their environments. Um, because there's no question, like I said, it, it kind of speaks to that wall analogy, doesn't it? What I'm hearing from you is that you're just being a really good wall and you're not actually necessarily the one giving the feedback. You're just asking good questions. You're asking good questions at the right time of, of the players, asking them to do the right thing. So you give feedback to him, da, 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 point to people. This is just good questioning skills. And then you're saying, well, you guys figure it out. You're coming up, you know, you're not, you're not, it's not, it's less done to and it's part of. Which yeah. is something I use a lot, you know, that let's not do to, let's create part of. Um not all the time. There's got to be a certain amount of done to. It's coaching, <laughs> but but how much part of is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the for the players. And then I guess the other thing I was thinking about was like, um, even like often because I'm doing one-off sessions, I might get once we get a period in and they start to understand, like you know, well, we've co-created some stuff to then get them to set some some challenges themselves, which might be around like I'm gonna you know. Every time Rusty annoys me as a referee, I'm going to smile and I'm going to stay in the moment. And yeah. or it might be, you know, I, I want to set myself these goals. Or between the four of us, we're actually yeah. going to make sure our team. So we've got this game, Rusty, and the the competition is to say which team can stay like psychologically on top. It's going to be a really frustrating mm-hmm. game, but actually, our goal as a four is to help our team stay, you know, and our teammates stay psychologically on top. Which, uh, yeah. Or my vice versa. Again, is to yeah you know, yeah my yeah you know, to 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 take them down. My uh, yeah my preference again is to like get them to start to come up with some of that stuff. And of course, like yeah. they don't know, then you you help them with some suggestions. Yeah, you ask. Yeah, you ask. You give them suggestions. You you ask them some some cool questions, and they usually they they will come up with something. But definitely, like some of the greatest sessions I've seen from a psych point of view, from a coaching is is out on pitch when when the coaches have have done some of this kind of, I remember there was um, an overload session that, that I worked 
I worked with the coach. Again, I was just a wall. He bounced ideas around and, and stuff. And he, and he had a really great session planned. And it was around the overload and, and players' risk and reward. And they got to choose. They were choosing, like, do they go risk? Do they go raw? reward? Who's going to wobble? When? And this was all, like, beforehand. There were, and there were two young players. I think it was an under-14 session. And there were two young lads who we did pull beforehand because there was that sense, like, they're going to wobble. Like, this could be hard. Like, what's it going to look like? What do you need in that moment? And then that also helped us to choose what lads were going to be around them in the overload, like who, what side they were going to be on um, so that so that when they wobbled, which they might do, actually, they they had uh, lads that were going to support them around them um, so they could get through the session and get something from it. Um, and it was just this great, you know, the, the players had so much, they had so much ownership and they, they would come out and they'd debrief each other afterwards going, right, we were too risk, we were too reward, let's go for it, let's not. And, you know, these are the discussions that in training session, the more they have them on a game day, when you've got to do that split sec- split second, um, it, it's more likely to to happen and that, that all, all your teammates and you can make the better, the good decisions in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I guess a gift as a coach is which teams you choose and, We've done. I remember vividly doing the opposite with a, a current England player, where actually we give him the people on his team that we knew were going to like find it quite tough, and he was going to have to like help them come up with some solutions. And I guess the other thing I wrote was like my experience of players like being able to set their own challenges is eventually they set challenges way higher than I would. Like they, they'll you know as you work them as they work through the levels like. Mm. They eventually, and they go, wow, we've like we've climbed a few steps here, haven't we? Sure. Um, the other thing I just thought about, and I guess is like probably be doing a little bit more of now is like I think it's often quite hard to do this like in a in a game. So that ability to like be metacognitive in a game is quite hard. But if, mm. if you were to take someone on holiday to Spain like you, and I'm sure like you've stepped off the treadmill and. You, you can see the big picture. But if yeah. someone would just come and hang with the coach while the game's going on and just uh, look, have you noticed how people are reacting to this? Mm. You know, do, yeah. do, would it be helpful if, like, we called a timeout? Do you want to speak to your team? So yeah. probably that's a coaching tool I would use way more than pull everyone in and we're going to have a huddle and I'm going to speak to everyone and speak to no one. Yeah, and, and one of the, the great coaching tools, again, I developed this with the coaches that I've worked with, is you know, what are the things that you're curious about that that you don't know about yourself that might be helpful that, that I might be able to clip out for you during a game? And we would have things like, oh, like I, I, the classic coach, like I talk too much, like da, da, da. It'd be, it'd be really helpful if at some point without me knowing you can just um, do a, a running clock on on how long I was silent for. So one of the best things was was minutes, total minute silence during a game. Um, which I clocked up and I remember like sitting down and debriefing one of the coaches. We sat down and, and I just showed him. And so he'd come up with a list of things he, he was curious about. This was some time ago. So again, he didn't, by the time he was in the moment that day, he, he wasn't playing to the cameras, if you like. He had no idea I was clipping out these things. So there was how much praise, direct, indirect. So I literally just, um, I tally charted it. And it, and it just created a really good starter for a conversation and some some work and some some stuff that he wanted out of to, to be able to to be better and to to make more impact on the sideline and one of them was 
you know, shouting, shouting the word um, relax. At, relax. You know, at the, yeah, we've, right, we've, relax at the top of his voice in the most stressful voice ever over and over repeatedly with a tone of voice that was talking like I am now. Oh, we're all really chilled now, right? Um, it's those little things, isn't it, that, that often is really helpful when someone else can just give us a nudge with that stuff. You're just holding up a bit of a mirror. What, and let, well, let's segue into match day stuff. What's your, um, my experiences of match day as a coach probably became much more relaxed as, uh, as I got a little bit older and I had kids. Um, um, found it really hard when I stopped being a player to try and be on the sideline and not try and control stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was pretty good, although I'm sure lots of my uh, people that are coached still reach out and go, you weren't rusty. Um, and I guess the, the stuff where you can have impact, like mm-hmm. half times and pre-match and like a, yeah. a really good, like helpful review or debrief, like often we're not practicing or reflecting on that enough. Yeah. To the, you know, so I, again, I did a good day, bad day the other day with a coach and a player of a, of a netball franchise. And I asked the player to talk about the coach on a good day. And she said, oh, this, you know, and you mm-hmm. spoke really confidently. And like, and it was, and I think like it was quite surprising to me as well. Like just, well, nothing, I guess maybe not, but like the players really pick up on like how confident you are, your message, yeah. you're like, you yeah. know, like, um, and really vividly, like, pick up on it. Mm. Um, mm. So I guess I've probably got more intentional around, like, those bits where I feel like I can I can be more helpful. And, and, and by being more helpful, I might just, like, it might not be saying anything. By being really helpful, it might be so. And what I remember at uh, student games in Brief, uh, like writing a game plan on my body when I was in better shape than I am now. <laughs> going, look, I met this guy, uh, Romanian Dante, and he wrote the game plan. And it was just going with this. <laughs> exactly. But it was just because it was going to be memorable. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't do it now. Um, yeah, I've got this image, and you're going to have to remove it, that you've got, you know, the, the, the old <laughs> Hulk, Hulk shirt on that you just rip open to reveal the game yeah. plan. Um, yeah. I won't sleep tonight. No. But I guess we're just a bit more emotional, aren't we? So even when mm. I'm speaking with coaches, like you'd have a development plan. Yeah. You probably almost want a development plan for match day. Yeah, sure. And 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 to know, and, in, and it's interesting, you sparked me into thinking just then that sometimes actually what can be really helpful is an intent for inaction. Yeah. An intent for inaction. How challenging is that? How it, how how empowering and how helpful can that be in, in right moments, intent for inaction? Yeah, skillful neglect. Mm. So, like just yeah. understanding that at this moment, the best thing to do is say nothing, Rusty. Mm. Yeah. And how have you been, I mean, so like, how, how do you feel like, and that's a great example, like simple, like tally chart, like, and again, I, there's a Premier League head of coaching, if he's listening to this, and they recorded their coaches' interactions and it averaged over a 90-minute game of one every 15 seconds. And there was more than one of them. So that was like, it's a lot of information, isn't it? Yeah. How do you think you've been helpful for coaches around understanding match days, brother? Um, 
I think some of the some of what we've just just talked about, you know, intent for inaction, the the skill of being silent, and and what's really important is is helping them understand. So, for example, you know, why why every fifteen seconds do they feel a, a need or a desire to have to talk, to have to control? You know, what are what are the games where they they or the matches they particularly do that more, and where does that come from for them? I know this sounds really deep, right? But it's not. Actually, essentially, often it comes down to the fact that what is my worth and value as a coach? What do I, what, 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 what is it placed on? How do others perceive me? How do I perceive myself? And to actually let go some of that control that we've talked about and to, to, to be quieter or intent for inaction, it feels uncomfortable. And often that's because we feel we are judged on action. We are judged on how much information we give the players. And the more we give, the better a coach we are. Which, of course, actually at our core, we understand is not helpful. And then, and that's a bit of a cultural coaching thing across organisations, sports, um, that we are starting to talk about and recognise that more doesn't always equal more. Um, like you said, skillful neglect. If I can during this podcast be silent for 30 seconds and listen to you does that mean i'm not as good a guest as everyone else oh we have a silence off now um yeah. and it got just triggered me there again around even just recognizing which games like so mm. as an example like as you you know you so again like where does it come from often it's home games because there's an expectation mm-hmm perhaps from the club or the owners or the, you know, so Joel have in France, in France, they have the, the Classement Britannique, which is the, the league based upon your home results. Mm. And that is the most important thing. So coaches will behave very differently at home. Um, also like derby games. Now, is it going to get triggered when we're playing against our, our London rivals? Or is it like, yeah, it just got me thinking a bit about how, aware are we of like the stuff that is it close games yeah you know whether we're winning or we're losing is it like in the, the, is it just after half time because it can be really frustrated because yeah. my half times aren't good enough the people aren't doing what i told them to mm. do why can i be experimental and free-flowing and everything i want to be as a coach you know with a little bit more player ownership a little bit less giving them information why can i be like that when we are playing dog and duck united at home as a friendly why can i be that best version of myself which actually i really want to be next weekend when we're playing chelsea but we're playing chelsea and we're 2-1 down going into half time and i can feel and sense myself feeling pressure to have to give to give to give because actually if the lads win or lose today it's not on them it's on me but when we're playing dog and duck and i remember and i'm talking about a real life example of a coach i worked with and we worked a lot on that and talked about it a lot um around the the differences in match days that he he, actually the coach he really wanted to be and at his best he recognized was in those games where there was a perceived nothing really riding on it or he almost got so I guess not bothered about the game that actually it made him better whereas when he was when he was too emotionally involved in the opposition and the game and and, and, you know, the fact it was was one of the, the derbies or one of the big London teams, for example, he recognised in himself, like he, he's often, he wasn't at his best on the sideline, tone of voice, 
amount of information, direction of information, the kind of information. Half times were less three three things of simple genius and more three chapters of flipping. <laughs> New Zealand uh, New Zealand rugby clarify, clarify like how important winning is. So often mm. there's a complete like there's a lack of clarity in an organisation around. Like winning, you know, everyone think, you know, the coach might think winning's 10 out of 10, but actually, from a club point of view, actually develop player development, coach development, having a, a variety of experiences is is higher than winning matches. Yeah, yeah. Or we might target certain matches. Yeah, it's in a, yeah, so we would have mentality matches and we'd call them mentality matches and we would have... Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of the other one. We had two two kinds, but they basically alluded to the kind of game it was and what the players were going to get out of it based on the opposition and based on, on what was going on. Um, and it kind of framed the way in which the preparations would be um, because very often we, we would notice that when um, players had to go and, and play, say, Dog and Duck United, Right. And it was just a, a rainy Wednesday night and they kind of knew they were going to win and they knew, you know, not that anyone ever knows that, but there's that perception, you know, what with the with the top dogs here, um, with the expected winners, it was very different to underdog mentality. And that's it. I mean, that that's another I won't go down the rabbit hole, but underdog versus top dog mentality are, are two very different things. And I would argue my experience um teams and players will will thrive often with underdog mentality um but what are we doing to support them to under and develop top dog mentality so when you should must have to need to win those moments of of um thinking where they often find it very difficult and that's what the very best teams do don't they in the have to need to must win games with all of those unhelpful pressurized words attached, they deliver the results. The individuals do. The top, the, the top teams in rugby would all have had moments this season where they've missed some of their best players, or they've been like, yeah, and and they've they win like by a point or two points, or yeah, yeah, it's like mm. it's a good nudge. Um, I'm mindful of time. I think we should do likewise. Another, we should do another one around some stuff like transition and selection yeah. and conversations like that. Mm. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna put a a line under that. Perfect. And I will set that up with a sentence. Start with the end in mind. Um, where can people find you? People can find me, as you heard, right now um, uh, in Spain. But uh, so I'm on my Twitter handle is uh, at Sarah Sports Psych, um, at Performance Edge for Instagram. And uh, weekly, I, I do content releases on, on a decade of, of elite football and my lessons learned in that environment that I release on those platforms every week. Um, so, you know, it, if anyone finds them, them useful, take, take a look. Beautiful. Instagram, you are down with the kids. Well done, you. Listen, it's, it's a new thing for me and I'm, I'm getting around it, but um, I promised myself that for 52 weeks after leaving my, my last job, I would um, just do one lesson or one applied learning a week of something that, that I, I learned or a mistake I made or something that, that happened. Um, so 52 weeks worth. And my one follower is enjoying it immensely. <laughs> well, I'm one of your followers. <laughs> 
um, well, there we are. Well, thank you for that. Enjoy the rest of your trip in Spain with your sister, with your younger sister. Um, and we will catch up when we're back. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Cheers, Rusty. <laughs>